guests today are Anna Gelfern and Christoph Trebesch. Both separately and together, they've done some of the most important and innovative work on sovereign debt markets. Anna as a, as a lawyer, Christoph as an economist. Although I, I have to say, it, it doesn't really matter what disciplinary background you come from. It's always a, a must read when either of them write something. Uh, and we wanted to talk to them today, especially about their recent paper with co-authors, Sebastian Horn, Scott Morris, and Brad Parks, and the paper is How China Lends, which is a really unprecedented look into the legal structure of Chinese foreign lending, focusing on loan contracts involving state-owned entities. And so first I, I wanted to, to say thanks for joining us, Anna and, and Christoph. welcome. This is so much fun. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Can't wait. Can't wait. Well, well, good because I have a I have a very basic question to to start, which is I was hoping each of you could say a little something about why you were interested in questions of legal structure. I mean, I suspect a lot of people will understand the importance of knowing how much China has lent and to whom. And, and Christoph, um, in a, a separate project with his co-authors there, has done some really um, groundbreaking work on those questions. But I wanted maybe each of you, and, and maybe Anna, you could start, just to tell us why you were motivated to look at the legal terms of China's loan contracts. Well, there are a couple of answers to that question. One is that they popped up on my doorstep. <laughs> and then, um, so these colleagues, um, uh, Scott and um, Brad, uh, one day said, hey, you know, we have these Chinese loan contracts and we kind of want to understand how they relate to uh, the norm in this field. And, you know, it's sort of like having an ice cream truck pull up in front of your house and say, hey, you know, would you like one flavor or 43? <laughs> like, whatever you have, just stay there and don't go. Um, so that's the very basic kind of dopamine hit answer. But then there is the, uh, the background, sort of what makes us this weird, what makes me this weird, I guess, is I just, until I see the contract language, I don't really trust that I understand what's going on. Um, so, you know, prospectuses are okay, but like when I see the contract language, I sort of feel like I, you know, I'm in the innards. I actually am like marginally closer to the truth. So that's, that's sort of, it was, it was that basic. Um, for me as an economist, um, the interest mainly stems from the fact that China has become this very important creditor to developing countries. It has become the largest official creditor. And uh, after you know, years of work, uh, multiple teams of co-authors co have found that um, these are large volumes and, and they identify to which countries they go. But we didn't know the, um, the details of uh, questions like seniority, uh, enforcement, um, and one reason is that these contracts are uh, pretty opaque, right? It's opaque. Uh, it's uh, hard to get information on them. And given the size of this, um, and also in the light of COVID, the COVID crisis, right? The, context of the, the contents of these contracts have become a matter of global public interest, as we write in the paper. Um, it's, 
with you know a dozen or so developing countries already in distress and more probably to come, uh, it's quite important to know how the contracts towards the most important creditor, one of the most important creditors, look like. What 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 is there in terms of what happens uh, upon a default? Um, and of course, there is this large public debate on uh, which largely focused on on um, the the assets and whether the, you know China could seize you know some ports or roads or whatever. Uh, in case of a default. So there is this big discussion, but very little facts, right? So both from an economic perspective in terms of size, but also in terms of policy relevance, we need to know what's in these contracts to understand how this big creditor behaves. And that was the what drove us into this project. Absolutely, preach. But, you know, like there's this one thing that you guys actually, I, I'm, I have a sort of ulterior motive. I want your reactions to this. Even if China weren't the biggest, and I think Christoph is exactly right, you know, China is the biggest, it's super important, and therefore we want to know what's going on. Um, but even if it weren't the biggest, it's fascinating to me that government to government lending goes by contract, right? That it's um, using uh, what we think of as commercial devices to do what? I don't know, you know, mediate the power relationship between the borrower and the lender, manage risk. Um, it's just fascinating to see contracts in this space. So I think even if, I mean, granted, there probably wouldn't be as much attention to it if it weren't China, if it weren't COVID, but I think the, the genre is super interesting to me. Anna and Christoph, let, let me just yeah. uh, interrupt you and I want to ask a question along the lines of what I think Anna opened up, which is that, you know, when, when I think about contract law, I primarily think about it as an, a mechanism to enforce the whole meaning of something being a part of contract law is that the state enforces it. And contracts are especially interesting when you have a large, diverse, dispersed population of lenders because they don't have mechanisms to enforce. And so they have to turn to the courts and to a particular state. And here with China, it just seems implausible to me that they're really going to go to court of any sort to enforce these contracts. And so one might say that the contract terms are perhaps irrelevant. They are just maybe copied and pasted from something else without any attention to them, I mean, I'm sure that you guys have thought a lot about this since you wrote this important paper on it, but I, I'd be interested in your view of why the contract terms here are so important. And as Christoph, you said that they're, they're a global public good when they, it seems likely that they'll never go into enforcement. And in fact, nobody even knows until you guys told us about them, what was in it. Well, I guess, I mean, th this fits right into what, what Anna said. This is a universe that has received much less attention. And that's a universe of official lending, of lending by 
governments or, or, or government-owned entities. We have had thousands, tens of thousands of papers on private lending, right? Uh, bondholders and giving money to a sovereign or syndicated bank uh, loans. Uh, we know much less on when, when governments lend. And it is important what's in these contracts uh, because it tells you about the, if you want, bilateral relationship that two countries um, go into. Um, it is therefore, in a way, even more fascinating than if you just look at private versus sovereign relationship, which indeed, as you say, is all about give me the money back. I want to earn my my, I want to earn my my return. Right, that's the key driving force. There's rarely a kind of a geopolitical or or strategic uh, aim in these private lending relations, private to sovereign lending relationship. But in the sovereign to sovereign lending relationship, there is this political dimension, which makes it all the more interesting. And yes, these are unlikely to go to court, but they are still a commitment of both sides and they have um, uh, relevance, just like any kind of bilateral agreement. I think. I mean, it's it's a strange hybrid. I think think of trade agreements. I mean, they they can't really be enforced. Sure, there's some vehicles, you know, um, uh, within the WTO, but there's tons of other agreements where it's not obvious how they should ever be enforced. And yet, uh, you know, we care about what's in them. I mean, think of climate policies and all that. Um, so in that sense, it's a, it's it's a really fascinating mix between these. Private style contracts and and uh, and and kind of sovereign to sovereign diplomatic quasi agreements, right? So it's it's a very strange hybrid. And as, as somebody who has looked at private sovereign for ten years, this is a a totally new and fascinating world. And, and like here, 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 and um, I want to push back a little bit at even the stark division because in some ways I feel like the private commercial uh, lending to sovereigns is um, the, the contracts that are used in that space are a lot less like regular commercial contracts between private parties um, than is generally supposed. And government to government contracts are a lot more like private commercial contracts than one might suppose. So. First of all, it's not like there's a ton of litigation in the commercial space. There's way more, as uh, Christoph and colleagues have documented, than there had been in the past. But it's not exactly like you know, even 1% of any uh, sort of contract signed on any given day um, are litigated in the private space. Um, and then in the public space, uh, you know. Russia did sue Ukraine. Did they sue them for $3 billion or for you know, the sort of general uh, power relationship reasons? Who knows? But I think what this does is it really um, allows us to uh, pull back. And I know both Me Too and Mark have done work on this and really see the broader range of functions of debt contracts and contracts more generally. I mean, for example, also in this China sample, Chinese lenders send a very familiar angry lawyer letter. You know, hey, you did something we didn't like. Did you notice the cross default in your contract? Right. The fact that not only do they have these contracts, but they um, 
use the very same or very similar tools that uh, private creditors would use uh, to negotiate disputes, to use their leverage in the bilateral relationship to get concessions elsewhere. Um, that's just super fascinating to me. One of the the points of contention and uncertainty, it seems to me, in recent years has been over how to think about Chinese state-owned entities as lenders, uh, whether they're, we should think of them as official lenders and we, we should think of them as private lenders. And maybe there's even some of that tension inherent in your project, the title of which after all is, is how China lends, even though I think the, the sample is just contracts of state-owned entities. Um, so I wonder, do you think differently after this project about how we should think about state-owned entities in terms of that um, official private um, creditor divide? Uh, or maybe you think that that divide is becoming increasingly useless and that this is, is evidence of that. But I, I'm wondering, um, what your thoughts are on on that question after having done this project? I think it's increasingly useless. I mean, I always thought this is kind of a big fog and smoke discussion. I understand that, you know, there's a large policy debate on it, but after all, there is a clear-cut OECD definition of what official lending is. And that, that definition came way before China used all these um, it's state-owned banks to, to, to engage in this large-scale lending. And it says, if a entity is majority owned by the government, then the credit is an official credit. Now, I understand all the, you know, hybrid features of this and, 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 and you know, some of the entities have different um, goals set by the government, you know, um, maybe the China Development Bank is, is more profit-oriented than Exim Bank. But still, they are both fully owned by the government. They are also directly or indirectly controlled by the government. Um, and you can see in the contracts um, that uh, there is this policy relationship in some of the contracts, right? Where, uh, we, where you know, when, when the contracts, for example, refer to um, a breakdown in diplomatic relationship being a trigger of a default, right? Um, that 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 is yet more you know proof that that this is an of a state driven lender as we also say in the other study. Um, so I think it's it reminds me a little bit of this whole you know how should we call it is it a restructuring or scheduling or reprofiling I mean you know it when you see it right I mean this is just just using different terms doesn't make go away that this is a state-owned owned lender of course i mean the well, christoph let, let me yeah. um the, this this is fascinating yet you've used a bunch of interesting uh metaphors here the you know it when you see it the uh you know the 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 control um the direct lending from from my uh perspective as a uh as someone who used to teach corporate law and used to teach asset separation, it's not a world of you know it when you see it. And it's much more a world of what, how do you define things at the outset in your contract so that your investors know 
what sorts of liabilities they are they could have access to and the question then is do, do we think about all of these in terms of what's really going on so if it's majority owned or controlled then we're just going to think of it as a state-owned enterprise, as a state enterprise, or in fact, not state-owned, but the state. Or do we want a system where, you know, you tell your investors, look, I'm a corporation. Uh, I'm not the state. And therefore, you can only come after my assets, or I will only behave with the kinds of uh, legal rights that a company has rather than a state has. And this seems to be a, a really basic question about how we should conceptualize this and what is best from a social welfare perspective. Um, so me too, I think that I am very much with Christoph, but I think with a kind of a different, um, maybe valence, I don't know. So when um, you say you're very much with Christoph, But uh, maybe with a kind of a- doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, well, but is, let me elaborate. What you see, what, what, what is it? No, 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 no. What you no, kill no, no. or what? No, no, I, no, I, no, I, no, I don't remember no. the exact metaphor. So I agree that it's a fog and smoke discussion, but I'm not sure that the implication is necessarily, all right, let's go to the formal OECD definitions or let's go to prospectus disclosure or um, some other, uh, you know, for lack of a better uh, term, you know, sort of formalist touchstone. Um, I think that this is a very useful wake up call um, alerting us to the fact that these distinctions have always been blurry and that they've just become so unacceptably blurry because in part countries where the state controls a big chunk of the economy or all of the economy are participating in the global markets as market actors, right? So in some sense, this is the 50s all over again, but I think it's more interesting because there are just so many different varieties of enterprises and so many different varieties of states. I mean, we actually, how China lens is a very deliberate um, choice because, and you know, we went over and over uh, the way we described these lenders in the paper. It says Chinese lenders for the most part, I think. And that's partly because I think, look, there are ways to characterize them um, but if you want to say they're state controlled, you say they're state controlled. You don't imply they're state controlled, you see. And how do you determine whether they're state controlled? I think we need to be as functional and as realist as possible here. Uh, and to some extent, maybe ironically, having these contracts helps us take some steps down that road, seeing what the parties do with these contracts reinforces for me the impression that these are fuzzy areas. But you know, this is not new. The European Central Bank was the biggest holdout in the Greek restructuring by far, right? I mean, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, you know, voted against. It's sort of not 
and it's not even a 2012, you know, 2010 event. This is something that's been around for a while. It's just, it's gotten so big and so in your face that we can't avoid it anymore. And it's getting bigger, right? So I, I'm, I'm entirely with you. Um, it's with the emerging market world uh, growing and growing, uh, this, these issues, these questions, you know, which are tricky to answer. I mean, I'm not saying this is black and white. I'm saying that who owns the, the, as you say, who are the investors? I mean, the investors of CDB and Exim Bank are the state, right? That's it. Um, so, so who owns those, those um, creditors and those investors uh, matters and is an is one of the, one of the key variables we should look at when we think about, you know, uh, motives of lending, consequences and all that. But this is a, so I think what, what Anna said, we're back, back to the 50s in a way, but, but we might see, you know, much more of that uh, as, as, you know, the Chinas, Russias, the Arab countries, um, uh, Brazil, India, they all engage as foreign investors and foreign creditors using state-owned entities. Uh, so this this issue will will become only more important. And and uh, yeah, it's it's definitely fascinating because the research has not looked at this much. Guys, as as we go to break, can I just ask you to talk about one of the more interesting findings that relates to this topic, which is the sort of no Paris club clauses in these contracts, um, which, so Anna, you had earlier mentioned the Russia-Ukraine dispute. And I initially, I wasn't, I wasn't entirely sure that I saw the connection there, but, but, you know, I have, I now think maybe the connection is that that's a case where you have this sort of quasi-official, quasi-private loan that allows the, the sovereign lender to kind of arbitrage this fuzzy distinction that, that exists between official and bilateral debt. So is that what's going on with these, um, these no Paris club clauses? Can you just, can you describe them just a little bit and then tell us your reaction to them? Um, so uh, thank you, Mark, for giving me the opportunity to clarify, that's exactly the connection I had in mind for what it's worth. And um, uh, the No Paris Club Clause is just the strangest bird there is um, to my mind. And uh, I, I'll let uh, maybe Christoph elaborate, but basically there is this thing called the, the Paris Club. And between the 1950s and, oh, I don't know about now, um, this was the place where government to government debt was renegotiated. Um, not everybody, not every government was a member of the Paris Club, but most of the money that governments owed to each other, um, at least when it comes to you know development lending, uh, kind of policy lending, including export credit, um, would go through the Paris Club. Um, and the Paris Club is a funny bird uh, because it's not really a club. It doesn't have a place. It doesn't have legal identity. It's just a bunch of nine, you know, nice folks who happen to meet in Paris every month um, and have coffee and croissants. Um, they became more real when they acquired a website. And on the website, um, 
they list some principles. One of them is comparability. Comparability, so one of the six, I think, main guiding principles of the Paris Club is um, the idea that everybody contributes comparably to debt restructuring, right? So creditors within the Paris Club sign something called the agreed minute. They restructure more or less on the same terms, but then they get the debtor government to promise to, um, I think, seek comparable concessions from all of its other creditors, be it governments who are not in the Paris Club or, and this is critical, um, private uh, creditors, including commercial banks and bondholders. So this was one of the tools and uh, to bizarrely, the fact that everybody concerned seemed to take this seriously. They, um, this was one of the tools by which sovereigns achieved something like comprehensive or more or less comprehensive or comprehensive enough restructuring. Mitu points out correctly that the debtors didn't get the croissants. It's the creditors that ate the croissants. The debtors uh, uh, were true to stereotype, were kept hungry in the lobby. Um, now, um, now you're going to get angry mail from the Paris Club, but that's okay. It's me too who said that. Fine. Um, back to China. The contracts in our sample uh, have this bizarro provision that says um, the, let's see, I'll actually read it. Uh, basically, the debtor will not take this debt to the Paris Club. In fact, what it says is the borrower hereby represents, warrants, and undertakes that its obligations and liabilities under this agreement are independent and separate from those stated agreements with other creditors, official creditors, Paris Club creditors, or other creditors, and the borrower shall not seek from the lender any kind of comparable terms and conditions which are stated or might be stated in agreements with other creditors. So basically, this says... Um, thou shalt not play in the same sandbox as other bilateral creditors. Therefore, presumably, um, thou shalt treat us better than other creditors, because after all, why would you have a clause like this saying, um, you know, you should treat us worse. Uh, but Anna, the way, so I, and I'm, I don't want to take us too far um, afield, but the the way the clause is written, it almost sounds like it makes the borrower ineligible. Like, don't you have to commit that you will? Now, of course, this has always been sort of a formal commitment and not a not a commitment that's been necessarily honored in substance, but you have to commit that you will seek comparable treatment from your other creditors. And now how can you go to the Paris Club now and, and um, purport to accept those terms when you have already promised ex ante that you simply will not even ask uh, a private creditor for equivalent treatment. Well, as Levin Libukite actually, you know, all of our mutual friend and your past guest uh, has said, look, either um, a borrower that comes to the Paris Club is violating its uh, Chinese contract terms or it's violating the Paris Club terms or maybe both. I mean, this is where 
your original point, Mitsu's original point, I think that, well, you know, what do these contracts matter anyway? Um, I think, you know, it's quite salient, but it's not really, Mark, it's not really unique um, to this setting. You may recall in some of the Brady bonds from the you know, 90s, there are clauses that say, and you'll never ask for debt restructuring again. These are just flat out unenforceable. You know, your debtor is not paying, your debtor you know, goes to other creditors and asks for debt restructuring and then um, goes back to you and asks for comparable treatment. What are you gonna do? You know, sue them double? Um, the interesting thing here, and maybe this is something we should talk about you know, later, but these contracts, about you know, a fifth to a third of them, contain other features that make them self-enforcing. So they give creditors control over bank accounts. And that's where it gets interesting. So a no Paris club clause by itself is just, you know, is precatory. It may be, um, you know, you may be signaling something, although hard to tell what you're signaling. You may be, um, I don't know, it's some sort of a symbolic performative thing, expressive thing. But then if it's married to creditor control of a bank account, then it could get serious because the minute you ask for comparability, the creditor says, well, I could, uh, I just froze your um, bank account. Would you like to keep talking or would you like to take that back? And that's the, that's, it's kind of a nifty marriage of government to government and, uh, you know, standard fair contractual hardball. Um, I don't know, Christoph, maybe I'm like going far afield. You tell. Guys, let's take let's pick up with that when we come back from our break. I I um want to keep us roughly at um 20 25 minutes, but Christoph, maybe we can pick up with you in just a minute. So, Christoph, um, if I might turn to you in terms of how you see these clauses. That would be great at this point. Um, Mark brought up the Paris Club clause, and I uh, love the language in your paper where you guys write in the abstract, talk about how you view uh, Chinese uh, lending contract terms as muscular. It's just um, maybe that's a common word in, uh, sovereign, in the sovereign debt literature, but certainly. Uh, um, I find it as a very, uh, very cool and new. So I'm curious as to what you mean by muscular. And I'm also interested in, I think in the concluding paragraph, you talk about how the Chinese contract lawyers have been ingenious. Uh, and I'm interested in uh, what do you mean by ingenious? And so in terms of backdrop, just looking at how, you know, you in your prior work would have analyzed these kinds of contracts, I think you, you would have primarily looked at them in terms of pricing effects and said, you know, whether or not a contract term is muscular or ingenious depends on what value you get from including that contract term, did the other side pay for it? 
but I'm guessing for reasons of data availability, one can't really do the pricing analysis here. So um, how, how did you come up with those uh, conclusions? And, and, and actually, what do you mean by that? Well, I guess um, uh, the, the challenge was to understand how the Chinese contracts compare to uh, quotation marks, the norm, right? So, so uh, and for that, we needed to understand something that is not as obvious at all, which is how do uh, other official creditors, so say the government of the Netherlands or uh, a state-owned uh, French bank lend. Um, and we tried to do that by um, gathering a, a counterfactual set of contracts, a comparison or benchmarking sample, as we call it, um, and we have that for one country that fully releases all of its contracts, which is high, very laudable and, and in this opaque world of sovereign debt, a rare, um, a rare occurrence, and that's Cameroon. So Cameroon releases all these contracts, which allowed us to compare um, uh, how, how these Chinese contracts look like um, and how the contracts of other uh, uh, state-owned lenders look like. And, the, the summary was exactly that, uh, that, that China, um, I mean, you can also say they're far less boring. Uh, they use uh, more elements of private contracts. There's um, uh, more effort uh, on, on, on the questions of, of enforcement, on questions of seniority, all right? These, this Paris, this non-comparability of treatment clauses, they are nowhere to be found in other official lending contracts. Um, the uh, these um, uh, cash uh, um, cash accounts, uh, which which you know in, in practice uh, are probably mostly uh, located in China, into which the creditor has uh, likely quite some leverage and might freeze uh, the the assets of the debtor. Um, those schemes are also nowhere to be found. Um, there are. Um, other quite far-reaching um, uh, clauses, uh, which basically allow China to, um, you know, cancel and accelerate, so ask for immediate payment of the entire loan at will, right? So, so uh, policy changes that are very vaguely defined in, in the debtor country might trigger a default, and therefore the immediate cancellation and and and. Uh, um, and full repayment uh, demand on, on the credit. Um, and uh, um, even, even, you know, the, in some of the countries, there's even the statement that the changes in the policy on the credit, in the creditor country, so in China, uh, might trigger a default, right? And that, that obviously, uh, you know, gives, gives a lot of leverage to the creditor side, uh, which is the state-owned Chinese Chinese bank. So, Christoph, um, I'm asking you the question you have asked me many times over the years. Like, lenders and borrowers bargain for different amounts of leverage, and we don't think that's a problem usually, so long as you pay for it. Are you saying that's not the view you're taking here? And I'm, I, here's my guess. Uh, I think and I, I hope you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that it here the usual analysis that we do about, you know, ask the question, how much are you paying for this extra leverage? Uh, 
it doesn't quite apply because of the externalities. Like this is, in some ways, the paper is all about the externalities and not about the dyadic uh, lending relationship. Am I getting that right, or am I missing the boat completely? Again, you are when you talk about pricing and all that, you're you're thinking of a bond contract, right? Uh, of a, of, a, of of private investors, but these are official. Like this, this is a, a you say dyadic government-to-government relationship and a contract between state entities. So there's still a price, right? I mean, I'm yeah, there's a price, an but, investment for money, but it is front and center political. It is front and the the the, the creditor is a political actor, and the uh, and the debtor is, and that changes uh, the the setup. Right, so if, if 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 some of these clauses are say on policy changes, right? You have to pay us if you change your environmental laws or your labor laws. If that is written by a bank, you know that has much less, as you say, externalities uh, than if uh, it is at the end of the day the government of China uh, being uh, you know being paid for changes if a African government uh, enacts new policies. That, that, that are to the disadvantage of the Chinese state. So it is front and center political, and therefore I wouldn't look at it only from a pricing perspective. I, I decisively wouldn't. I've always been fascinated by questions of international political economy. And this is, uh, you know, this has a geopolitical angle and that shines through all of it. Um, and therefore I think we need to take a bit of a different perspective and not just on pricing. I mean, the pricing is might give us a little bit of a, of a if, if one could do that analysis you have in mind, which I agree is, is probably uh, non-identifiable you know, effects, but, but if one could do it, it would be fascinating to see how private creditors value you know, or price those contracts and, and, and react to them, yes or no. Um, but uh, in itself, it's just to me fascinating to see how these, how these contracts are written and, and, and um, quite clear that that China uh, uses similar clauses but in in a much more you know muscular or robust or whatever other words you want to use um, uh, um, language um, so and let me chime in on the pricing question um, and you know as, as all of you know I'm, I've been sort of a lifelong pricing skeptic but um, this is where I think there's actually some there are some really interesting questions to be asked, and I think both of you are getting at them, but maybe from different directions. So since the paper came out, we've actually gotten you know, a fair amount of feedback, both from official and market sources. And um, one of the contentions, and it's a reasonable contention, is that uh, the... Um, uh, is that China lends to really risky countries where nobody else lends, not even other official creditors. And you know, let's put the all kind of that set of facts uh, aside for a second. But you know, they go into super risky places. So a, it makes sense for them to use more precautions, belt and suspenders. So both sovereign credit and collateral, quasi-collateral, and covenants, right? But then the other piece, and that we've gotten from uh, you know, asset managers in particular, is, well, they do lend at lower rates. But the problem, and the problem becomes only starker when you look at the 
contracts that we have is that you really can't tell what the all-in price is because virtually all of these contracts, actually all of these contracts, are tied in with another dozen contracts. So for example, if you get a break on the interest rate on the loan, now that would be an exciting finding because it would mean terms matter, right? Some package of you know, legal non-financial terms, um, you know, this promise to put money in an account, the cross default, the negative pledge, the pari passu, you name it, right? Some covenant package gets the debtor a break and that's exciting. That would be exciting, but for the fact that um, there is a commodity sale contract that we don't have. And anecdotally, you hear that well, the debtor is selling oil at a big discount or another commodity, or there's some other, and this is where Christoph's point comes in, when the creditor is sovereign, there are other things they value. Um, you know, not recognizing Taiwan or not messing with Hong Kong is sort of an extreme example, um, but you know, not expropriating other Chinese investment in the country or, you know, hiring, um, you know, contractors from that uh, the creditor wants you to hire for an unrelated project. And that's why I think in this context in particular, a pricing would be awfully hard to tell. And maybe this tells us something about pricing more broadly, frankly, apart from super liquid bond markets. There's a lot going on and all in price is hard to discern. So guys, can I ask, um to have a shift gears a little bit. Um, so one of the things I was wondering when reading the paper, you don't really address, it's not really, um, it's not really the focus of the project, but some aspects of these loan contracts seem to contradict some relatively conventional types of wisdom about sovereign debt markets, like, well, you, one of the problems is it's essentially impossible to promise priority. Um, you know, secured debt in the literal sense, or even in the kind of functional sense doesn't really exist. And, you know, depending on who you ask, that can be viewed as, as problematic or lead to debt dilution and things like that. Anyway, I'm wondering the extent to which some of these contracting practices like the sort of effective collateral pledges are dependent on the fact that the lender is a state and backed by the kind of broad suite of coercive and persuasive tools that a state has, and that's why they work? Or should we expect, now that you've made this data available and people can see some of the terms of Chinese lending, should we expect not just maybe other official lenders, but private lenders to adopt some of these mechanisms too. And in particular, I'm thinking about collateral protection. That's a very interesting question. Um, it goes also back to the question of, of me that Mitu asked, which I didn't answer, which is on why, why do we call them ingenious or why do you think this is innovative? Uh, they are pushing the frontier on writing sovereign debt contracts in a, in a, word with, in a world with very limited enforcement. Um, so they are, I would interpret what they are doing as um, experimentation. Um, they, I mean, th there is this historical examples of collateralization that, that Me Too uh, has, has written on and, 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 and others. Um, 
where you know the bonds were also backed by some resource flows, say uh, earnings from from uh, a silver mine or or some some um, uh, revenues from trade uh, and tariffs. Um, but that has kind of died off in the in the interwar years. Um, in the past 70 years, collateral of sovereign debt was was basically very rare. I mean, with a few exceptions, Brady Deal, etc. Um, so they are introducing a new type of, uh, you know, contract, a new a new attempt, if you want, at at a better enforcement. And whether it works or not is to be seen, right? I mean, um, the collateral in the interwar years uh, seemed to be valued in restructuring um, situations. So some of the bonds with collateral got away better with better terms, so lower haircuts. Um, so it was worth something, but that's in rare occasions. But um, it seems at least indicatively that these collateral deals did work in, in a few cases. You know, For example, I think uh, Venezuela, the information is very incomplete. Venezuela and Ecuador, they, 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 they have been substantial oil flows um, at, at low prices in a situation where Venezuela had defaulted on, on, on and other countries had defaulted on, on, on pretty much all other claims. The fact is we really don't know, but uh, they are experimenting and they are introducing innovations in, in, in this high risk setting. They are, after all, willing to go into, as Sana said, into these high risk environments. And they also go in it, and that's also important, in, in a bundle, right? So, so uh, me too, to your question before, this is not just a, a credit contract, it's a bundle, right? I mean, the, the, this is basically Chinese firms coming in and building those railroads and, 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 and building those mines. Um, and, and that makes it, you know, um, a very different animal than just classic contracts. Uh, whether there is adaptation, and then I finish, uh, Mark, uh, are others, uh, will others follow up on that and 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 come up with their own collateralization scheme of with resources or these cash accounts? Uh, well, we will see, but um, it's a possibility, right? And and maybe that's not a bad thing after all. We, I mean, a classic uh, economic theorist might say, you know, if enforcement is more, if there is some kind of commitment, if enforcement is is easier, uh, then maybe you know repayment is more credible and more capital flow to these high risk environments, leading to growth and prosperity in these areas. Uh, so we would uh, overcome some of these frictions that have impeded uh, uh, the free flow of capital um, and and made you know uh, made that, that crisis harder to resolve, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so we will see, right? But it's certainly fascinating to see that China is pushing the frontier of how sovereign debt works. Hey guys, um, I I love I love I love that answer, Christoph. It 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 sets up for me why, in so many ways, that this project is wonderful and so much better than uh, much of what, at least I do, uh, in large part because it, it, you've um, really gotten out of the straitjacket of how we're expected to do these studies. And uh, I, I, the innovation and ingenuity part and uh, your willingness to say, look, you know, we can't always look at pricing. Like that just is, uh, sometimes it doesn't give us the answers we're looking at um, is, uh, I, I, I love that. Uh, I'm gonna use that 
in talking to my students about how to do good papers. But as we get to the end, and we've already taken up uh, too much of your time, I, I'd like to ask both of you for your thoughts about sort of what next, uh, because it feels like you've opened up a whole new field of study that we're gonna look back at this paper and think, you know, this one really changed the paradigm for how we study this. And I know the two of you are, are far too humble uh, to uh, recognize that, but Mark and I certainly do. Like it, you, you've, you potentially changed the game. So if you had, um, if you could get what you wanted, what kind of additional data would you be looking at? And what would you want in terms of the follow-up studies that other people would do? Oh my God, it's like drinking from a hose. <laughs> Uh, um, so one, what, what is this drinking from a hose? This sounds like a torture kind of metaphor. Uh, no, this, no, no, no. This is a new Anna, to my, I was this, trying this to, is a new feature uh, we're introducing for this episode. You cannot use a metaphor without explaining it to me to satisfaction. We're trying it out. We'll see how it goes. You can tell us it's whether like, it's enjoyable. Uh, it's, like, <laughs> it's like super extra, insanely abundant abundance. It's like... It's like swimming in a pool of chocolate. I don't know. It's it's just, it's. I just feel like it's such a huge question that you ask. There's so many things. I mean, one of the things, you know, I sort of, I, I studied with uh, Nitu Gulati. And one of the things that I um, was very curious about at some point we noticed, and Christoph will laugh maybe, the, some of these contracts have, like little trademarky law firm stamps. So at least three contracts in the set have um, were negotiated by big law firms. And um, so one of the things we're looking at just uh, and very, very casually, uh, some students and I looked at whether those there was something different about those contracts, whether they were more like, the market standard in you know the loan market association form whether they were more aggressive less aggressive and to one of the questions that need to ask up front and again you laugh because it's such real reversal they are so carefully and not accidentally drafted i mean there are provisions where there is a one word difference from the lma form that changes the substance of the whole term. And I think that uh, I'm just fascinated by the care with which they're drafted. It reminds me, I totally agree with um, Christoph that this is, it's a little bit like some of the 19th century experimenting you see in Mark Fondreau's work and uh, others. I think we need more, right? We need to understand where, you know, what's important, who considers what important. It would be wonderful, probably impossible, to try to unbundle this uh, kind of set of um, variables and figure out who values what. Um, I think it's, to me, it's an opening to really thinking through contract as a tool, contract as a medium, right? What contracts do is so much more than enforcement. And in other ways, it's so much less than enforcement, right? It's, um, 
I would love to see a more contracts and more like it would be great to see at least one complete deal, like all of the various tentacles in one case, um, so that we could at least describe it, right? And then uh, really just unbundling what the different actors do, other governments, um, different kinds of private creditors, different kinds of borrowers. I mean, this is a lot of Mark's work, right? On state-owned enterprises as borrowers. Um, Oh, there's so much. I'm telling you, it's like drinking from a hose and swimming in a chocolate lake, or maybe swimming in a chocolate lake and drinking from a hose. I don't know. My, 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 I have been increasingly fascinated with this topic of state lending and state investment abroad. So, I mean, being an international finance uh, researcher, we have looked far too long on, on the private flows. I would like to convince you know, my colleagues and, and, and beyond that it, it we have a lot to learn about these state-driven um, activities abroad. So again, back to the 50s in a way, the, the emerging markets rising, we'll see more of this. We have already seen more of it in the Euro crisis. Um, so the state is playing a bigger role in international finance. And I would like to gather as much data as I can on those things, right? So, so what are the states actually doing abroad in terms of lending and investing? Uh, who are the actors? What are their motives? What are the consequences of this? Um, uh, so, so, you know, beyond search for yield, you, you, your standard kind of portfolio optimization models just don't work in that world. Uh, so what kind of theory do we want to use to understand this? How do we nail the geopolitical pudding against the wall, right? I mean, we all know somehow politics matters, geopolitical factors are important, but how can we rigorously measure that? So I see this project kind of a part of a larger, larger agenda that I want to pursue in the next years on, on state-driven lending and, and investments abroad um, with, you know, the Belt and Road just being, uh, 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 just being uh, one example of many earlier uh, episodes where states invested um, and, and lent abroad. Um, so I think this is, an, this is a fast, to me, fascinating uh, field, including like there is no no great research on the Marshall Plan, right? For example, just to give a parallel, so that those kind of things are are on my mind, and and so um, I, I will hope keep keep data gathering uh, in in that regard and try to shed some light on it. Um, so there's this one teeny little thing. Somebody, anybody? I've been fascinated by the fact that the um, German uh, lender KFW, which is a hybrid of sorts describes itself in exactly the same way in its prospectus as the China Development Bank and China Development Bank describes itself exactly as like KFW. Um, like hybrids are not new, but something is different now. Um, I think there's room for comparative study um, in this space and Marshall Plan is a brilliant idea. I am, I'm struck. We need to let you go guys. And I, you're, you have been, Wonderful, and I'm so grateful that you are here. I, I'm I'm trying to fashion something pithy out of all the metaphors. We've got drinking chocolate from a hose. I envision in some crazy industrial kitchen somewhere hoses full of chocolate that are being used to make pudding that people are then trying to nail to a wall. And I wanna just leave with that image because I find it so pleasing that I don't really know what else we can say, but uh, Thank you for joining us. It's some, um, uh, yeah, we're we're super grateful.